This conversation on COVID-19 was made possible by Discovery. Welcome to Inside COVID-19. I'm Jackie Cameron for Biz News. As South Africa eases into a new normal under level one of lockdown, citizens are being urged to download a tracing app so that the country can avoid going into another stricter lockdown. In this episode, we hear from a wide range of experts on how the COVID-19 tracing app works and why you have no reason to fear that your privacy is being compromised. And our partner Wall Street Journal provides an update on where the US is in the vaccine race. Also in this episode, we speak to a nutritionist on the growing problem of malnutrition in the era of COVID-19. First, the Inside COVID-19 headlines. As of the start of this week, just under 662,000 cases of COVID-19 have been reported in South Africa. The number of COVID-19-related deaths is at around 16,000, with the Western Cape and Gauteng reporting the highest number of deaths. At the start of the week, European stocks plunged the most since July on concerns about lockdowns. The Stocks Europe 600 index dropped, as did the FTSE 100 index. In London, travel and leisure shares were the worst industry performers amid these lockdown concerns, sinking more than 5%. The US market also opened lower, with the S&P 500 index down just over 2% in early trade on Wall Street. And it has now fallen about 9% from a record high earlier this month, reports Bloomberg. The number of deaths in the United States related to COVID-19 has approached 200,000. In Europe, Germany's health minister says the trend of cases is worrying. In the UK, the number of cases of COVID-19 are now at the highest level since May. Prime Minister Boris Johnson will convene crisis talks on tackling the resurgent coronavirus there are expectations that local restrictions would soon be extended to London. India's virus tally is approaching 5.5 million people. Indonesia's capital is adding thousands of beds to house patients as its health system struggles with record infections, reports Bloomberg. The heads of Mann Group and Schroders say the shift to working from home will become the new normal. Mann expects to have about 10% of employees back in the office next week. The world's biggest publicly traded hedge fund firm says it won't even try to have more than about 70% of staff working in the office on any given day. Iceland's health ministry has ordered the closure of all pubs and nightclubs until September the 27th, as a number of infections have been traced to pubs and karaoke bars. Ireland may widen restrictions after introducing new curbs in Dublin over the weekend, with three more counties where the virus is spreading quickly in focus. China's northeastern city of Changchun has found coronavirus particles on the packaging of frozen squid tentacles from Russia. Bloomberg reports that authorities have reminded residents to be cautious in importing frozen seafood. Many New Zealanders will taste freedom from this week. For the second time, COVID-19 restrictions have been lifted. Some restrictions will remain on the largest city, Auckland, for a further two weeks, reports the Guardian newspaper. Iran appears to be in the grip of a third wave of the coronavirus outbreak, with the number of new infections above 3,000 a day. This is as high as at any point since the virus first hit in February, reports The Guardian. 
Iran was one of the first countries to be struck by the virus outside China. Its officials brought the disease under a form of control by early May, but then experienced an increase at the start of June that drifted down to fewer than 1,600 new cases a day in late August. Inside COVID-19 from BizNews. Last week, President Cyril Ramaphosa urged South Africans to download the COVID essay alert app. The government's plan is to use the app to trace people who have come into contact with COVID-19 infected individuals and get them to self-isolate, and in so doing, use this as an alternative to strict shutdowns. But some people are worried that the app will not work and that it may be a case of Big Brother encroaching on citizens' rights to privacy. BizNews has been assessing the details of the app. In this package, you will hear from Discovery CEO Ryan Noach, who explains how the app works. You will also hear from Guarang Tana, the National Health Department expert behind the launch of the mobile app. And if you're worried about your privacy, hear what Emma Sadler, a lawyer who is a data and privacy specialist, has to say about the app. The University of Stellenbosch's Professor Wolfgang Preiser, one of South Africa's top medical specialists on diseases like COVID-19, says he has downloaded the app. I want to make a call this evening to everyone who has a smartphone in South Africa to download the COVID Alert mobile app from the Apple App Store or Google Play Store. The app has been zero rated by mobile networks, so you can download it without any data costs. Discovery CEO Ryan Noach speaks to BizNews founder Alec Hogg. We're very excited about the app. We built it at no cost to the Department of Health um, and have given it to them. It's their app. Uh, they've contributed costs towards it too. The presidency has been involved in supporting the Department of Health on it. It uses the Apple Google API, which Apple and Google created for the whole world's benefit. Um, and, uh, you know, we would encourage as many people as possible to download the COVID Safe SA app. Uh, once you've downloaded it and switched it on, there's nothing more to do. It works in the background of your phone. And as long as your Bluetooth is on, it will warn you if you've come into contact with somebody who is COVID-19 positive. And I had a good chat yesterday with one of our leading lawyers, uh, Emma Sadler, who explained in great detail why she has downloaded the app and why the privacy issues are not there, as you said before, on the Google uh, and Apple development. It was specifically to take that into account. She did say to me that you had a senior counsel from your side who, who, who made sure that all the privacy regulations were followed. Why go to such extremes? Uh, you know, privacy in 2020 has to be first and foremost in our minds in everything that we do. Certainly as a financial services company dealing with confidential financial and medical information, we don't do anything without first ensuring that it's safe, secure, and that privacy is protected. Um, and so that's a routine part of our governance. Of course, the Department of Health who owns the app, um, uh, you know, they have done all sorts of due diligence and privacy checks on it too. Um, and uh, you can be assured that your identity is not disclosed. In fact, the technology is so clever, it stores a token on your local device uh, for the phones that you've come into contact with. If, if one of those phones re recognizes a COVID-positive patient, uh, you know, the, the tokens talk to each other and the token shows up on your phone. And after 14 days 
of no exposure, those tokens are completely destroyed and disappear from your device. So there's actually no identity attached to the tokens at all, and uh, it's a very secure environment. BizNews founder Annie Hogg speaks to Warang Tana, the National Health Department expert behind the launch of the mobile app. So the way the app works is essentially you download the app with an intent to receive a notification from somebody else who may test positive later and may have come into contact with you. So it's very, very important that people download this app before they become infected. So we encourage all South Africans to download the app and in an eventuality they come into contact with the positive, hoping that person also had the app on. Both of them could be protected because the index case would then be able to inform you that they come into contact with you and have now have reported positive. If you walk into a supermarket and another positive came close contact with you but didn't know was spreading the virus without him knowing it, essentially this person could a few days later, you know, notify their their diagnosis on the app and the app will do the rest of notifying all the close contacts that that person came into contact with. Now, I get that. But the problem here is Big Brother knows where you are at any point in time. So, so how, are you prote- how are we protected against that being a Right. Problem? So very, very important question. The way the app works is I would have, for example, an app installed on my phone. You would have the app installed on your phone. The app doesn't know my name. Your app doesn't know your name. Both the apps have unique IDs. If me and you come into close contact with each other, Alex, within close proximity, within two meters as well as for a sufficient duration for like 15 minutes. We use WHO's guidance on this. The apps would exchange IDs. And say a couple of days later, I report positive. I didn't know I came into contact with you. Only our phones know that this phone had had a close exposure with that phone. And so your phones are really your proxy measure of distance between two people. I would notify my device of my positive diagnosis using a PIN code that the Department of Health would have sent me. And the app would then notify all the close contacts, would do the rest, basically. And it's all part of this whole project that Apple and Google have put together to make sure that there isn't going to be any abuse. It's a very special, presumably, encryption codes, etc. Absolutely. So there are two key pieces of technology that make it work. The first is Apple-Google interoperability between the two sets of devices and then the app itself. The second is the validation of a positive. What you don't want is a person who deliberately come into close contact with hundreds and thousands of people and fictitiously report a positive, creating panic in the system. So what the app does is it's got a validation process built in. Every person that gets a confirmed positive result would receive a PIN code. The PIN codes are sent to, by the way, positives and negatives, but it's on capture of that PIN code together with your date of birth The app would then verify that against our COVID Connect system and verify indeed that this is a true positive and then allow the exchange of keys to happen. And this is just to ensure that the fidelity of the system is not compromised in any way. But the two are completely different services. The validation service and the exposure notification service that we use with support from Google and Apple are totally independent services of each other and therefore very much privacy preserving. Emma Sadler, a lawyer who is a data and privacy specialist, has this to say about the app. 
and let's use this amazing tech that's available to us. And there is no reason to be suspicious. They can come and contact me if, if you find out that your information has been misused. Uh, I'll take the hit. I really do think that people should download this app. I think it's a really good step. You know, because Alec, we all want to get back to normal life. And this is a step towards that. This will allow us to live our lives as sort of normally as possible because we will have the comfort of quick notification. It's immediate. You know, it's not like we have to go through the list of every person we've come across. Immediately, you get a pop-up on your phone saying you've been exposed on this day, and then you can take the steps required. So it is a little bit about selflessness. You don't really want to go out there and make other people sick. And if you believe in that, here is a tool that can help you to achieve that more noble ambition than somebody who lives in ignorance and might unwittingly be making lots of others ill by not really knowing their status. Absolutely. You know, it's selflessness, but it's also allowing me to be selfish because it allows me to go on with my normal life and be exposed to people that I don't know with the comfort of knowing that I will be notified if there is any potential exposure. So I think that it's, for me, a no-brainer. Exposure notification and early exposure notification is really absolutely critical to how we contain this epidemic going forward. And um, the technology is there, and let's use it. Finally, we hear from the University of Stellenbosch's Professor Wolfgang Preiser. Within the limitations that these things may have, I think if a sufficient number of people use it, it will help. And in fact, I'm currently attending a workshop and one of the intended participants can't make it. So we are zooming him in because he has been diagnosed with COVID. He's coughing. He's otherwise not doing too badly, but he does not know where he would have become infected. So the, the hope is that by more widespread use of these apps, he would have received a warning from somebody that he encountered, who at the time was very likely still feeling perfectly well, who then came down with a cough and a fever a day later, went to have a test, got the test result a day or two later, and then found that he had COVID and had exposed uh, others. So I think this is where apps can really help. Um, so I, I'm, I'm all for it. Coming up, our partners at the Wall Street Journal share the latest on the race for a vaccine in the United States. Even before the first coronavirus case was confirmed in the U.S. in January, Dr. Anthony Fauci and his team at the NIH had started developing a vaccine. Our job, our business is emerging infectious diseases. And when it became clear that we were dealing with a brand new virus that had emerged, you know, from the middle of China in the Wuhan district, we knew very little about it. But the one thing that was clear to me then is that if, in fact, this turns out to be something that is formidable that we need to deal with, the time to start working on a vaccine is now. That process to create a COVID vaccine has been moving faster than any vaccine in history. By March, there were vaccines in phase two clinical trials. And since July, several vaccines have entered what should be the final phase, phase three. And the fact that we started the vaccine development early was fortuitously a very, very good thing because we're now well into the phase three testing of more than one vaccine. Not only the one 
that we were involved with with our vaccine research center, but a number of candidates that we're now facilitating the development of. But even if these vaccines do get approved, another massive effort will need to get underway, vaccinating hundreds of millions of Americans. Coming up, Dr. Anthony Fauci on when we can expect a vaccine to be widely available and what life may be like once we have one. spoke to Dr. Fauci last night from his home office. So we're six months into the pandemic. What are you watching most closely now? Good question. There are two things that I'm watching. I'm watching things from a public health standpoint, and I'm watching the science for which I'm responsible for a fair amount of it in developing safe and effective vaccines and therapeutics. So from the public health standpoint, the thing I'm most concerned about and watching carefully is as we now continue to try to open up the country, getting college kids back to school, in some regions getting children back to school, in some areas opening up to get employment back, that we don't do it in a way that again leads to surges. So that's the reason why we talk about the wearing of masks, the physical distancing, the avoiding crowds, washing of hands, they sound very simplistic, but they really do work in preventing the kind of surges that we see. Now, that's public health measures. The thing I'm obviously very interested in, because we're very much involved in it, is the development of safe and effective vaccines, as well as therapeutics. So this is what we really want to focus on in this interview, vaccine development and the rollout. How close is the U.S. to having a vaccine? And how close are we to having a vaccine that's widely available? Well, first of all, there's no guarantee. And I think that we keep getting ahead of ourselves. Having said that, I feel reasonably optimistic that we will have a vaccine that we know is safe and effective by November or December. So let us say by the end of this year, We have a vaccine that we feel fairly confident is safe and effective. Right now, doses are being produced. So in the beginning of the year, likely the first people will get it. And we haven't decided definitively because recommendations have been made by various committees. But one of the groups is going to be the first line responders, the healthcare providers who are putting themselves in harm's way. Another high priority group are people who are susceptible to a severe outcome if they do get infected. Those are the elderly and people with underlying conditions, which have an overrepresentation among them of minority individuals when you talk about the susceptibility to hospitalization. When you ask, when will we have a situation where there will be vaccine distributed so widely that there will be a blanket of protection in the country that we can start thinking about getting back to some form of normality. I think that is going to be towards the middle to end of 2021. And what percentage of the population is that, where you can have enough people vaccinated that we can return to normality? 
Well, it's a combination of how effective the vaccine is and how many people wind up getting vaccinated, how many people are willing to get vaccinated. So, you know, if you have a 98% effective vaccine like measles, then you're going to have a degree of herd immunity that if you get 90% of the people vaccinated, you have a veil of protection that you're not going to have any infections and you can eliminate. I would hope that we're going to get a very effective vaccine. I would be satisfied with the 75% effective vaccine. And when you have a vaccine that isn't totally effective, then you need more and more people vaccinated. So what we're going to try and do is to get as many people as we possibly can vaccinated. And that gets to reaching out to the community to convince them that it's safe and appropriate and important for them to get vaccinated. Okay, so once a person is vaccinated, what is that going to mean for their life on a day-to-day level? Can they go on vacation or to the movies or sing at church? You know, that's a good question because they're living in a community and it depends upon how effective the vaccine is. Because if you have a vaccine that is effective to the point where we'll say 70% or so, if it's not necessarily effective in you, what you're going to have to do is continue to do the public health measures. So what we foresee is that there's going to be a gradual progression of a combination of the public health measures that we're talking about and the protection that we'll get from a vaccine in the broader community. It's going to be both. It's not going to be one or the other. I feel confident we'll have a vaccine, but that doesn't mean we can throw caution to the wind and say, don't worry about anything because we have a vaccine. We can't do that. So you can sing in church when everybody in your church has taken the vaccine. It's the individual and the community that will bring the choruses back to the country. Right. In other words, if you want to get to some degree of normality, the baseline infection rate in the community needs to get really, really low. What does that baseline level need to be? You know, that level is the level, for example, I had a press conference with Governor Phil Scott of Vermont the other day. The test positivity in Vermont is 0.2%. That's a very, very low level. Now, it's great for Vermont. The only trouble is that you want to get the entire country down to that level so that when people travel back and forth from place to place, they don't recede. And once you get the level of infection down really, really low, it almost self-propagates itself to stay low. But you've got to get it low. Once it's way up there, it's tough to get it down. What is that for the country? Is that 5,000 cases a day or 2,000? I would imagine you're talking about a really low level, like way low, 1,000, 100 or what have you. That's what I'm talking about, hundreds of cases, thousands, but not 20, 30, 40,000 cases a day. So this makes the vaccine sound more complicated than the silver bullet that we're all hoping it will be so we can kind of get back to life as normal. It will be a very, very important tool to get us back to life that we would consider close, if not actually normal. 
But using that tool successfully will have some challenges. Dr. Fauci, now let's talk about some of the challenges the vaccine rollout could face. Polls have shown that as many as one out of three Americans don't want to take a coronavirus vaccine, in some cases because of how fast it's being developed. What do you say to those concerns? And also, if I can add, the concerns of communities of color that have historic distrust of the medical establishment. Those are two good questions. Let me just accept the first one. The speed is not because of cutting corners that have to do with safety. The speed of whereby we went from getting the sequence on the 10th of January to actually starting vaccine development on the 15th and 62 days later getting into a phase one trial. We're taking what's called financial risks. Instead of doing things sequentially, you say we're going to invest hundreds of millions of dollars to assume that each step is correct. Because if you do that, that allows you to save months and months. The other thing is you start producing vaccine in large quantities before you know it even works. Because if it does work, you've saved months. If it doesn't work, you've lost a lot of money. So it's the investment in money. It's the risking finances. It's not risking safety and it's not compromising scientific integrity. And the second part of your question is that's why it's important to get a good representation of minorities in the forms of African-Americans and Latinx and Native Americans and others to participate in the clinical trial so that when the clinical trial shows we have a safe and effective vaccine, we can say yes. And we also tested it in minority subject and it was safe and it was effective in minorities. That's how you get people to appreciate that you're dealing with them on an equal basis and you want them to be protected. And as we think about rolling out the vaccine and building public trust in a vaccine, there's also the matter of our memory, that our experiences in coronavirus was not having enough testing or enough PPE. So how can the public be confident that a vaccine rollout will go smoothly? You know, it's going to remain to be seen because a lot of effort and a lot of money has been put into that process. That is something that is not in my bailiwick. I develop the vaccines and develop the drugs and do things like that. But the plan that comes out of Operation Warp Speed and the logistics of the supply chain and the distribution are now under the broad leadership of General Gustav Perna. And from the money and the logistics that have been put into that, we are being promised that we will be able to get that done. One issue in winning the trust of the public is also having them trust you and the scientists and the CDC. A poll came out from the Kaiser Family Foundation showing that trust in you personally and the CDC has fallen sharply since April. Now, 10% for me, it went up with the Democrats and down with the Republicans. Why does trust in scientists matter right now? And what can you do to turn it around? Well, 
You know, I believe, and I think you're, regardless of the numbers that you talk about, I am really pretty well trusted in general. And the reason is because I always talk with a basis that is on evidence and science. You've got to be humble enough and open-minded enough to make the modifications in what you say, as long as the modifications are based on the science and the facts. Because there were things that we did not know early on that we know now that have triggered us, at least me personally as a scientist, to make a change in what I have said. Sometimes that gets misinterpreted as you were wrong then and now what do you... No, if you say something that's based on the science, you were not incorrect at the time. You would be incorrect if you stuck by your old guns, even though the science was changing. You've got to be able to use the science and the evidence as it evolves. We're, we're dealing with an evolving situation with this outbreak. Even today, we do not know all the answers. That's for sure. All right. So you've been on our show twice before. Right. In April, when the virus was out of control here in New York, and then in July, when the virus was spiking in other parts of the country. And now here we are in September. How would you describe this moment we are in right now? You know, I would describe it as a critical time right now. I mean, again, let's describe it in a public health standpoint and in a scientific standpoint. From a scientific standpoint, we got a few vaccines in phase three trial. We're moving along. We have a good degree of cautious optimism that that's going to be very helpful. From a public health standpoint, where we are right now is a critical time because we are seeing downticks in certain areas, downticks in cases, downticks in hospitalizations. However, one of the concerns that we have is that we do not rebound back because we become complacent and we start saying, well, we don't have to wear a mask or we can congregate or we can not worry about the public health measures. We've got to get the baseline down lower and lower and lower, particularly as we enter into the fall and winter season. The challenge is going to be to get through that season without having surges that might occur when many of the things that we're doing outdoors now, we're going to be forced to doing indoors. And I hope that the country as a whole has a consistent downward trend as we enter into the cold season. Is that possible if not everybody is adhering to social distancing, mask wearing, and not congregating indoors? Yeah, that is going to be difficult. Everyone wants to open the economy. No one wants to lock down. Everybody wants to move forward so that we can get back to some degree of normality. We need to look upon the public health measures as the gateway and the vehicle to opening the economy, not the obstacle to opening the economy. And in a politicized atmosphere, in a divisive atmosphere, that's what we sometimes see, and that is unfortunate. So what we're trying to do is to get the country to pull together, put divisiveness apart, put political things out of the way, and let's, as a country, get down that level to a very, very low level. 
We can do it with public health and it will be greatly helped by a safe and effective vaccine. Dr. Fauci, thank you so much for your time. Next, Biz News reporter Linda Van Tilburg speaks to Professor Karina Walsh from the Department of Nutrition and Dietetics at the University of the Free State about the growing problem of malnutrition and obesity. There is a record-breaking number of South Africans plagued by hunger, and many have been forced to turn to charities to help them cope with the fallout of the COVID-19 pandemic and the lockdown. Earlier, the founder of the organization Gift of Givers, Dr. Imta Suleiman, told business how he found families that have been eating wild plants for weeks and children who were licking empty jam tins on waste dumps. He also received appeals from people in managerial positions. The pandemic has also highlighted the issue of malnutrition that existed prior to the coronavirus outbreak in South Africa, which is not only an issue for the undernourished, but also for overweight people who are more at risk during the COVID-19 outbreak. It has prompted three nutrition organizations to join forces to call on the government to address malnutrition urgently. The president of the Nutrition Society of South Africa, Professor Karina Walsh from the University of the Free State, told BizNews that the government needed to come up with interventions to address the increasing problem of malnutrition. In South Africa, we have a what we call double burden of malnutrition. So the word malnutrition means wrong nutrition. And that doesn't just include undernutrition, but it includes overnutrition as well. So in terms of undernutrition, we always look at stunting in children, which is growth where they don't reach their full growth potential. And then um, if it's severe, children become wasted. So then you can really see the malnutrition. But in children that are stunted, you can't necessarily see it. So you'll just think it's a younger child than it actually is. Then also in terms of undernutrition, we've got micronutrient deficiencies that are very prevalent in South Africa, specifically iron deficiency, anemia, and vitamin A deficiency. Um, are very common. Our previous surveys have showed that up to 43% of children are vitamin A deficient as well. Then on the other hand, we've got overnutrition. A person always thinks people that are overweight are not malnourished, but very often people that are overweight eat a very nutrient or energy-dense diet that's nutrient-poor. So they might be overweight, but they actually also suffer from malnutrition. And if you put the two of these together, we really have got an epidemic of malnutrition in South Africa. What percentage of children are undernourished in South Africa? Stunting or the growth of failure um, is an indication of long-term or chronic food shortage. And in 2016, the figures for children that were stunted in South Africa are as high as 27%. So in other words, one in every four children is actually stunted. And then if we go to the other side and we look at overweight and obesity, more than 60% of women in South Africa are overweight and obese. Um, something that's also quite interesting is that stunting in children predisposes you to becoming overweight as an adult. So if you don't reach your full height potential, your chances of being overweight as an adult, if you were stunted as a child, are much increased. 
And then we have got a big problem with overweight and obese people that have got a much bigger risk of developing non-communicable diseases such as diabetes, heart disease, the list goes on and on. And now in the COVID epidemic, we have clearly seen that both undernutrition and overnutrition increase your risk for being admitted to hospital with COVID and also developing complications as a result of COVID. Do you think that 27% that you were talking about of children being undernourished, do you have an idea how much that has grown during the coronavirus pandemic? Well, it's difficult to measure stunting in the short term because obviously it's something that develops over time. So we would see an increase in the prevalence of, example, underweight, you know, people that have lost weight. But the stunting is difficult to assess at this stage. And then we've got the added problem that we cannot really go into the field to do research in the time of the coronavirus. So it's difficult for us to start a project and go into the field and weigh and measure children um, because we're increasing their risk for getting COVID. You know, we are starting with a national food consumption survey in 2021. And I think at that stage, we will be able to see the increase from 2016 when we've got these figures of 27% of stunting in children. Um, next year, when we do our national food consumption survey, we'll be looking at a representative sample of children. And only then will we see how severe the problem actually has been. What kind of anecdotes do you hear from the field? What is the extent of hunger in South Africa at the moment? The extent of hunger, you know, is very high because we know from our previous surveys that more than half of South Africans, even before the COVID pandemic, are either hungry or at risk of hunger. So we do know that in this time, we have seen about up to 24% of people reporting that they don't have money to buy food. So that is um, that is a lot of people. And then in, at the same time, the food prices have increased by as much as 30% over this uh, pandemic, which adds to the financial strain that we see. And you know the Sustainable Development Goal of Zero Hunger by 2030 has been set. And if we continue at this rate, we definitely will not meet that goal, that Sustainable Development Goal. What interventions are you suggesting to address the problem of malnutrition? Well, obviously, there's a whole list of interventions. You can see from what we have discussed so far that nutrition needs to be prioritized. So in terms of policy agendas, we're asking that nutrition be prioritized on any agenda that's related to health and social security. So, yeah, we want to include a regulatory framework to support access to healthy and affordable foods. We feel that the government needs to pay attention to that. Then also to provide strategic direction and ensure coordinated and aligned programming to address food and nutrition security um, together with civil society organizations. We also want to look at food and social relief approaches. And you know that a lot of social relief Grants have been made available in this time, but then obviously we're very concerned about the way that those have been managed and you know about all the corruption that has taken place with these grants. A further intervention would be integrating nutrition into universal health coverage, so to make it indispensable to ensure that in the longer term we can address 
the problem. So those programs, we do have very good programs in place in South Africa, but we do feel that they can be expanded. And then we need to be looking at vulnerable groups. There are specific populations that are more vulnerable, and this includes, as you've now spoken about, the children. It also includes elderly people and then women of childbearing age and those with pre-existing medical conditions. And here I'm specifically thinking of TB, HIV, AIDS, and then the non-communicable diseases. Furthermore, we want to ask for government to coordinate strategies to address the main drivers of malnutrition. And here we're looking at the food and nutrition environment. So where a lot of foods that are available, the cheaper options of foods will be high energy, but low nutrient density. So we don't just want to look at quantity of food. We want to look at quality of food. So we need to be looking at foods that contain micronutrients and fruits and vegetables, the healthier types of foods, instead of just giving energy-rich foods. I think in terms of quality nutrition care, we, we need to be looking at investments into human resources, people that work in nutrition, that have the background, that have the expertise to address it. So we're hoping that posts in terms of persons that are qualified in nutrition will also gain attention. And then finally, I think looking at nutrition education of the public. So looking at nutrition messaging and communication campaigns. And that's why I'm so keen to speak to you today, because the media plays an incredibly important role in um taking information to communities, and we just want to ensure that the correct information is given and that nutrition education that is relevant and that can really make a difference gets enough attention. If we look at the task that the government has with the economy and and budgets Mm. that are so restrained, is there a first step you think they could go for to make a difference? Well, obviously... In the short term, the food aid programs are important. I definitely agree with that, and especially for vulnerable groups. But in the long term, we need to be looking at the underlying and basic causes of malnutrition. And these include things like, you know, education, poverty alleviation. It's a much larger problem when we look at interventions to reach the root causes of malnutrition. So I think in the shorter term, the food aid programs are important, but we can't just continue giving people food without addressing those underlying and basic causes. So that's a long-term strategy that needs to be put in place. Inside COVID-19 from BizNews. And that brings your Inside COVID-19 to a close. Until next time. This conversation on COVID-19 was made possible by Discovery.